Welcome to the 386th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thank you for listening. It's getting warm here in Southwest Florida. Mangoes are getting big. Actually, I had my first mango off the tree this week. Very delicious. Our Namdok May, one of my favorites. So I'm pretty excited. Uh, the wind hasn't blown the mangoes off. It's threatened, but so far, so, so far, so good. Tower garden full of tomatoes, some peppers, arugula still blooming. We have three different varieties of tomatoes on the tower garden this year. Some of the tiny ones and a bigger cherry or caprese tomato. Actually, there's a bigger uh, beefsteak-like tomato and an heirloom. Sometimes when I plant seeds, I'm not sure exactly what I plant. So this year has been a surprise with the different varieties. If you have some interest in tower gardens, I do have a connection. Uh, one of our members is a tower garden distributor, uh, Debbie Dendiger, and I will actually leave a link in our show notes if you'd like to inquire more about those, um, but you can use them inside and outside. And um, uh, again, it makes gardening easy. Uh, plant the seeds, add some electrolytes, and watch the thing grow. Our raised beds are doing well still. We have collards and kale, some Swiss chard. Um, Dacon radish is still going great. A uh, whole bed of parsley. A little bit of uh, basil going on, um, celery. If you've ever, uh, if if you buy celery, if you just cut the stalk off, you leave the base, you can replant that, and that's where I grew my celery from, and that's that's doing uh, really well. So, yep, so far so good. And even my black sapota, again, I talked about it last week. First year we've had blooms that tend to be hanging on, so I'm hopeful. We're now entering week three, post our 50-mile race, and uh, my mileage is back up. We're hitting five and six miles. Still, you know, not a lot left in the tank. Uh, I'm ready to stop after five or six miles. Uh, I had a fair amount of hip flexor tightness, a little low back tightness after runs. Working that out with stretch, but I'm really encouraged this week that uh, things are getting a, a lot better, getting some more flexibility. Uh, I am actually doing uh, some pretty steady yoga to try to get my hip flexors opened up, concentrating on running form. Um, I'm kind of proud of myself so far, so good. Usually I uh, get really tight after a race and end up really tweaking my back, but I'm, I'm really paying close attention, doing a lot of glute activation before I get started, and it seems to be working, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Next up for us is the Leadville Marathon. So we're going to have some big hills there, some starting this week, first week, to do some treadmill, um, actually power walking at a 15% grade. So we'll gradually add more and more of that in here over the next couple of weeks. Again, I'm not pushing it too much just because um, I don't want to tweak anything with such a short buildup to our next race. And then after that, it'll be easy peasy for a while, the summer, start training for the swim run in November and then back to CIM, and uh, then back to Ultraland. So exciting times ahead. So this week's going to be mainly about nutrition. So for all you people bored with my running stuff, uh, we'll back, we're going to back into some nutrition. So last week in class, um, I made a broccoli casserole that had broccoli, chickpeas, brown rice, 
nutritional yeast, garlic, soy milk, and a potato carrot cheese sauce. And so to me, that was a pretty colorful, green, yellow, orange, um, garlic, cruciferous vegetables, protein. I, I, I thought that was a pretty good uh, recipe. It's certainly easy to get together. I can do that at home in 40 minutes door to table. That's my uh, assessment on weekday meal preps. So if I can get something uh, coming home without too much trouble during the week, that's what I aim for. Great warmed up. It gets better uh, over the next couple of days for leftovers. And I had a question. I had a question at the end of class. Well, what about glycemic load? And am I, am I worried about glycemic load with such a dish? And is there, you know, the carbohydrate source? Is there too many carbohydrates? And no matter how much I talk, and no matter how many nutrition classes some people come to or listen to, it has been ingrained in their head that we need to be careful with carbohydrates. People don't really understand what carbohydrates are, I don't believe, in some. They just know that they're bad, and they equate with sugar to people. And, you know, can I have too many? And is it going to cause me to be fat, or am I going to get belly fat? And glycemic load means how quickly does the glucose go up after a meal compared to plain sugar? So 100 grams of glucose and compare anything else to it, how fast does the glucose rise in the bloodstream? So if you ate pure sugar, like I do, I don't really eat pure sugar when I'm running, but I eat near as close to as simple glucose as I can get a hold of in my gels. The idea is to get that glucose into my bloodstream from my mouth as quickly as possible so that I can uptake it into my muscles and use for energy period. That's what I'm looking for because I'm looking for plain old energy, plain old glucose. I'm not looking for any nutrients. I'm looking to perform running. So that's all I'm looking for is an energy source. And that typically is what a plain old sugar will do. But carbohydrates of any other form start to have more to them than that. So we have to divide nutrition and energy into two different camps if you're, if you're talking about. So the, the basic question is, what am I after and how does this particular food help me achieve what I'm after? So if I'm out running, that simple carbohydrate, that simple glucose is going to be the best for me. If I'm living day to day and I want my body to function as best as it can for as long as it can, then I'm also looking for nutrient density. So how many other things in that carbohydrate source, per se, do I get? Broccoli is a carbohydrate, predominantly. There's a tiny bit of fat, maybe 0.5%, 5%, 1%, 1 to 5% fat. There is a little bit of protein, 1 to 2 grams per cup. The rest, carbohydrate, as far as energy goes. But nutrient-wise, in cruciferous vegetables, I have a whole lot of anti antioxidants and things that fight cancer. I have fiber, um, sulfurous containing sulfurous vegetables. Um, again, a lot of protective uh, benefits, anti-cancer properties. Um, 
nitric oxide producing potential. So when I chew broccoli, it mixes with the amylase in my saliva and the micro, uh, the microbes in my in my tongue, and I generate nitric oxide. So that broccoli does a whole host of things for me, whether I have cancer, want to avoid cancer, cardiovascular disease. It gives me a whole host of nutritional value in addition to the energy it supplies. What about the beans? The beans are a little bit higher in protein, a little bit higher in fiber, but still predominantly carbohydrate. They have a little bit more protein. They have a little bit of fat. Again, very balanced. And the best thing about plant-based is that it's actually about, most of the foods are balanced, just like we want them. About 80% carbohydrate, 70 to 80% carbohydrate, about 5 to 10% fat, and about 5 to 10% protein. So if you eat those plant foods all day long, you're going to get the exact amount of macronutrients, protein, glucose, and carbohydrate that your body needs. The next thing that happened was this particular person grabbed their arm muscle and says, yes, but after I've been outside working in the yard, my muscles become very sore and I have to watch what I eat because I'm losing muscle mass. How can I avoid that? I have to be very careful. I feel like I need to take in an extra source of protein. The reality of it is this person is not taking in enough calories. If you get enough calories, just like I said before, you're going to get, and 10% of those are protein, you're going to get plenty of protein whether you're a man or you're a woman. If you're trying to add muscle, then it requires a strength training program. And in that strength training program, your muscles will become more anabolic and they'll take up more nutrients as you supply them more calories. So your body's pretty smart at knowing what it needs, when it needs it, and then it stores the rest. So taking in extra protein in the form of protein powder or protein drinks just results in storage of eventually fat. So it doesn't do anything if you're not using those muscles in order to try to build muscle. And that's a pretty slow process as we get older. Delayed onset muscle fatigue after a vigorous workout or working hard in the yard often comes from glycogen depletion. So your muscles have your heart rate goes up and you burn carbohydrate a little bit more than fat. And the carbohydrate stores in the muscle tissue themselves starts to deplete. And when you burn carbohydrates as your heart rate goes up, you burn a lot more water with it as well. So when we sweat, a lot of that is actual burning of intramuscular glucose in the form of glycogen that generates water. And we sweat that out. So we don't necessarily lose blood volume up early on. We lose the water associated with glycogen storage. So when the muscles become water depleted and glycogen depleted, then they kind of shrivel. And when you replace those energy stores and the muscle can function better, it clears lactic acid, it clears hydrogen ions, it repairs better. So the muscles need a source of energy themselves. I'm not breaking down muscle when I work out to any great degree for the most part. 50 mile runs, yeah, I'm starting to break down some, some muscle. 
But even when I break down those muscles, I have a continuous supply of building block amino acids that, that are being broken down from other enzymatic functions. And again, when I do a physical activity, other activities decrease. I'm not producing enzymes to digest. I'm not producing enzymes for other bodily function. Some of those enzymes will be broken down and generate a pool of amino acids that I can then use to build back my muscle. There have been studies with labeled protein intake and very little of what you take in during the day actually goes to making muscle tissue that day or delayed onset, you know, recover, muscle function recovery or building muscle. We use mainly recycled uh, amino acids in that process. But nevertheless, you're taking in, and every food has it, the essential amino acids, not necessarily in the same amount that your skeletal muscle has, the same percentages, but you're taking in them, so you're generating those building blocks. So we're never really depleted of the amino acids need, needed to use to, to make muscle. So if I go back to my broccoli cheese casserole, I have potatoes, which is a complex carbohydrate starch. I have the carbohydrate from broccoli. I have the carbohydrate from brown rice that is used to actively replace my glycogen stores from a workout. I have the protein that's in the broccoli and in the rice, as well as more so in the garbanzo beans to rebuild my amino acid supply. So it all works out. It's actually a great, great dish, great food, no matter what you did that day, whether it's a you know, long run or uh, lumberjacking in the backyard. A more worrisome diet would be that of a high-fat or a ketogenic-type diet where I took in very low carbohydrates so I would not be able to replenish my glycogen stores. I'm working in a starvation-type mode using ketone, the breakdown of fats into fatty acids to, to use energy, which requires oxygen, more oxygen than carbohydrates, so it's a slower burning fuel. I don't have the carbohydrates that I need for my brain and tissues that rely exclusively on carbohydrates, so I actually have to break down some muscle to generate glucose for those activities. So it has been shown in a ketogenic diet that there's actually muscle mass loss. We see a decrease in glucose because we're not taking in much glucose when you eat a low-carbohydrate diet. There's a decrease in insulin because it's not needed because there's less glucose taken up. There's an increase in what's called ketone bodies, which are a byproduct of fat metabolism, fat metabolism and free fatty acids. There's also a loss of muscle mass, a decrease in insulin growth factor because there's a decrease in insulin. There's an increase in cortisol, which is associated with an increase in inflammation. There's an increase in actual breakdown, so auto cell destruction. There's decreased muscle protein synthesis as well as increased muscle breakdown. And there's increased oxidative stress type things that occur that, that start to stimulate the genes that are associated with oxidative stress, again, leading to more inflammation. So while a low fat, or I'm sorry, while a high fat ketogenic diet may burn more of my fat, 
and I may lose more subcutaneous fat, I'm also losing protein in that calorie-restricted starvation state. And I'm also generating more inflammation. With my broccoli cheese casserole, I'm replacing my amino acids, I'm replacing my glycogen stores, there's more water associated with all those things, I have more antioxidants, more anti-cancer-fighting chemicals, fiber, if I didn't say that. So you can see much more nutrients, much less waste product, much less inflammation. The other thing associated with increased protein intake, depending on the source, is an increase in sulfur-containing amino acids such as methionine, cysteine, and toluene, and then homocysteine. Cats can't make toluene. That's why they're carnivores. Dogs don't make it all that well. They need meat uh, and a toluene source. And actually, most animal foods are deficient in toluene, either by the way they're processed, the way they're overheated, or the quality of the food that they get. And so the animals can actually be toluene deficient, which can lead to heart problems, muscle problems, brain function, neurological problems. It's been translated that if it happens to animals, it could happen to us. And so toluene supplements are sold in vitamin stores and people take it. However, toluene associate was, there's a, it's a sulfur-containing amino acid, which actually is um, associated with some side effects as such as increased risk of, of, of cancer, decreased lifespan, um, and decrease insulin sensitivity. It has been shown that methiazine restriction, meaning a diet low in methionine, such as a plant-based diet, because animal proteins are much higher in methionine, has been associated with increased lifespan without changing the caloric restriction uh, in a mice type or other mammals. There's less oxidative stress with methionine restriction and more efficient fuel burning. Plant sources of higher protein are naturally lower in methionine and sulfur-containing amino acids. The highest methionine is found in turkey, which is funny because everybody thinks when they go on a diet or they're trying to do better, they eat turkey, ground turkey, and it's actually one of the worst things that you can get a hold of, especially if you've ever processed any of it. Uh, very, very fatty, very high in methionine. Beef's the next highest methionine, fish, pork, um, cheese, obviously dairy-type products. If you look at the um, actual grams of methionine, the recommended daily intake is somewhere around 540 to 700 grams, uh, man or woman, lean body weight. So it's 4.5 milligrams per pound of lean body weight. And so if you look at Turkey, uh, it's 1,583. So basically over twice what you need in a day. Beef, 1,539 milligrams. Tuna, 1,505 milligrams. Pork chop, 1,445 milligrams. Tofu, you drop way down to 532. Just, again, just what the body needs in a day. Um, Brazil nuts, 319. White beans, 261. Quinoa, 178 milligrams down to red cabbage 12, cauliflower 39. So if you want to decrease your methionine intake, intake, improve your lifespan, then you need to stay away from animal products. 
you need to eat a lower protein diet. So again, this has been thrown down our throat over and over and over again. Are we not getting enough protein? We need protein for muscle and energy and to be, you know, strong. And it couldn't be further from the truth leads to more inflammation and more ill health. And it's also making Sophie cry. Sophie is crying because I won't throw her toy, not because she's afraid of methionine. We talk in nutrition class, and certainly Addie Minerich, when she consults with our members, we talk about a well-balanced plate, a colorful plate, uh, making sure that the plate fits our activity level, a uh, balanced plate with protein, carbohydrates, fat, but nutrients, greens, beans, grains, fruit. But the reality of it is our body does just fine if it's not exactly that every day, or every meal of every day. The funny part about it is, you know, everybody's, you know, all into paleo and what our ancestors ate and the hunter-gatherer, and we argue about did the hunter-gatherers eat meat or didn't they eat meat? Did they eat more fruit? Did they eat more tubers? The reality of it is they ate what they could find, and they might have a day that they found a lot of tubers. They might have a day they found a lot of fruit. They might get an antelope someday, you know. So I, it wasn't, oh, my goodness, our plate's not balanced, and, and, you know, we have to sit down and, and worry, or we have to try to find some supplements, or we're going to die because we didn't. So the reality of it is if you want to be more like our ancestors, we're trying to get all the nutrients in. If we get enough calories, we're going to do better than our ancestors because most of those people were calorie deficient. So we're getting plenty of those because food is very abundant in our society. We want to make sure that the food serves what we're doing. So we're looking for antioxidants and phytonutrients and fiber and anti-cancer property of foods. We want something besides just the macronutrients of protein, fat, and, and carbohydrate. We want bang for our buck. We know more about what we need to maintain a good gut microbiome. But we don't have to drive ourselves insane worrying about not getting enough of because clearly the majority of us are getting too much of. The last thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is an article that Dan Buettner wrote recently in The Atlantic, and I'll, I'll leave a ref, reference to it, but it's basically celebrating what Finland did to decrease the incidence of cardiovascular disease. And it's really sad that it's not blown up on the news and, you know, we should try this or why didn't we think of this or why isn't this working in the United States when we really haven't nicked cardiovascular disease with over 600,000 deaths due to cardiovascular disease each year, despite more and more stents, more and more bypasses, more and more drugs, more and more statins in younger and younger people. So what happened in Finland. Well, in 1972, in, an, in, the, in a province in North Karelia, they noted that there was the highest myocardial rate in the world. And there was a young doctor, he was 27 years old at the time, that was given the task to lead, and his name was Dr. Pushka. And he was given the task to lead a project on how to decrease cardiovascular disease in the Finnish people. And in result, over a decade, he lowered in a population of 170,000 Finns the heart attack rate 80% by basically just targeting diet, smoking, and high blood pressure. So how did he do it? 
Finland became one of the seven country studies that Dr. Ansel Keys looked at. And so every five years they were doing extensive questionnaires, blood tests in the seven countries that included Finland, the Netherlands, well, uh, Yugoslavia, the United States, Greece, Italy, and Japan. What they noted in this seven country study was the further north the country was, the more meat they consumed and the more heart attacks that they had. At that time, Greece and Italy had a much lower incidence and they were mainly plant-based. Finland had 30 times the incidence of heart attacks than Crete. They died on average 10 years younger than their Greek counterparts. And what it was attributed to was after, in World War II, before World War II, most of the northern Finnish men in this, uh, this northern providence, they were largely lumberjacks. They hunted game as their source of meat. They ate some fish. They ate berries. Really what killed them was they either died of some sort of infection complication, injury, or uh, there was, you know, the death during childbirth birth was some of the highest reasons for people to die in that time. After World War II, there was compensation to the Finns, and they got a plot of land to raise pigs and cows. Associated with that was a much higher increase from then on of the intake of pork and dairy consumption went way up. There was butter in every meal. Things were fried in butter. There were fish, too, added to butter. There were milk and bread and cheese you know, added to everything. And in 1972, over half of the Finns smoked. So Dr. Pushka took this information, and he hired young people like himself, and they looked at how they could target more of a prevention than reversing of disease. And they noted that the higher the blood pressure, the higher the, heart, the rate of heart disease. They noted if you could decrease cholesterol by a point, you'd actually decrease the rate of heart attacks by about that, uh, that same percentage. And that lifestyle and longevity, I'm sorry, that longevity was really more related to their lifestyle than their access to doctors or public health programs. In other words, longevity was not linked to procedures and pills, but lifestyles such as diet and exercise. Go figure. So the goal of this brilliant young physician was to shift people's diet and exercise and their social environments. So he actually looked to, again, no, not a big, you know, not a big jump here, an organization called the Martha Organization, which is a, which a large women's group with lots of clubs around the area, and they started to have longevity parties. And Dr. Puska and his people uh, gave talks on how to replace butter with oil, more of a vegetable-based oil, how to replace meat with veg vegetables, cutting salt intake, smoking cessation. Um, they came up with recipe books that the women could distribute. They looked at decreasing fatty pork intake, adding more vegetables such as rutabaga, potatoes and carrots to the meals, less meat, and to cook more plant-based. And they also recorded, uh, reported lay ambassadors, and they were usually women that would go around, and they actually did things like teach women who did most of the cu uh, cooking to replace some of the butter with vegetable oil, so they kind of cut the butter. 
They decrease the butter in different things, how to cook differently. They increase their fruit intake. And again, in Finland, there wasn't the ability to get a lot of different fruits in, but what they could get in a lot of was berries. So there was a lot of different berries in the summertime. So they actually initiated programs to collect and, and uh, to, to pick and harvest berries and freeze them and actually distribute them to people. Instead of regular old sausage, they'd fill it with mushrooms, so they cut the fat. Um, they did smoking prevention competitions from county to county, so to speak. And again, over 25 years, smoking was cut from 52% to 31%. Heart attack mortality was cut 73%. More than any other medical intervention ever has, ever has been done anywhere. And this people are not singing from the rooftops. I'm singing it from the rooftop right now. I'm singing it from my office. Sophie's crying. She's so happy. Lifestyle interventions. Changing diet. Stopping smoking. Lowering salt intake. Lowering blood pressure. Decreasing fat intake. Eating more plant-based. Resulted in improved longevity. It worked for the Finns. It can work for us. We don't need a whole host of medication. We don't need a bunch of scores and tests to monitor our progression of heart disease. If your cardiologist watches your carotid stenosis and watches your heart function with yearly stress tests and checks your blood but doesn't do anything about it but except tell you to eat healthy, exercise, mainly if they even tell you that, but more than anything, write your prescription. We are doing something dreadfully wrong and not improving your lot on life or your mortality. Pfizer, that company that people know and love for their vaccines every three months, recalled another blood pressure medicine that's been out forever and ever, Quinipril, because of the cancer toxic metabolites in it, contamination in, in that blood pressure pill. Pills are recalled. More side effects are known every day to medications that we've used for a long time and medications that, we, that have just come out on the market. If you turn on your TV and you see a pharmaceutical ad, there's about two minutes of side effects. There's no way we can alter a gene, alter anything in our body without having a consequence. But what we can do is let our bodies do the talking. It knows what it needs. It can heal itself if given the opportunity and we take the toxic metabolites away and eat simply. Simply doesn't mean going through a drive-in. Simply doesn't mean going eating out of a box. Simply doesn't mean eating out of a can. Simply means eating from the produce department. It is blueberry season in Florida. We're getting fresh blueberries. My papayas are ripening. Mangoes are starting to come in. I still have mame sapota dragon fruit, those are the things I rely on. The price of food is going up, but the price of health is worth the price of food. I would rather pay three bucks for a yellow dragon fruit than multiple thousands of dollars for a procedure or medications that I have to take for the rest of my life. People come in my office, or they used to come in my office and say, yes, but my insurance covers it, so it's no big deal. It is a big deal, 
because it does add up to those copays over time, but so do the side effects more than anything that mount up over time. We've recently found out that aspirin, everybody's supposed to take an aspirin, but it really doesn't work. It was never, it has never been studied in women. It has never been shown to do anything good in women. And now we know it can increase your risk of hemorrhagic stroke. Best plan, prevention. Eat your vegetables, eat what's local. In the summertime, we used to grow green beans, pole beans, corn, lima beans, beets, cabbage, lettuce. That's what we ate. We picked berries. There were fresh apples. We picked peaches and cherries. That was up north. That was in West Virginia. Here in Florida, now we have fruit season and what's in stock. You can grow kale. You can grow okra. We can get fresh fruits and vegetables in here. So eat what's local, eat organic, say no to glyphosates, and go out and move your body. And I won't talk about running this podcast because some people are bored with that, maybe. Not me, but some people are. Thank you for listening. Hope to see you again next week. I guess I hope you listen again next week. Oh, and don't forget, share this podcast with your friends. And if you want to find out more about our practice, go to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y.com. Learn more about our practice. Email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. Love to hear from you. Maybe I'll see you at a race. Take care.